Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Uh, hello and welcome to the Commonwealth Club here in San Francisco. My name is Raj Mathai, anchor at NBC Bay Area News. Uh, it is great to see so many familiar faces and new faces. Uh, and this place is so special. I think you can all agree with us uh, in terms of just making our community better and learning from each other. Uh, we've got a great night ahead, obviously. A few reminders before we get started here. Tonight's program is being recorded. So we kindly ask you right now to silence your cell phones if you haven't done so already for the duration of this program. Also, if you have any questions for Mayor Brown, and I know all of you are going to have questions, uh, you should see some uh, a, a note card there on your seat. Please feel to fill that out and send it to one of the runners in the room. If you're joining us online, there's a note question and answer box there on the YouTube chat function. So welcome to everyone online as well. It is now my pleasure to introduce tonight's guest here at the Commonwealth Club, the Honorable Willie Brown. Mayor Brown has dedicated his life, really has, to civil rights and public service uh, at the local, state, and national levels. He served as the 41st mayor of the great city here in San Francisco and was a multi-term member of the California State Assembly, where he was also the speaker. Today, he is the chairman and CEO of the Willie Brown Jr. Institute on Politics and Public Service, an independent nonprofit organization providing a forum for nonpartisan education, debate, and discussion of public policy, issues to expand the expertise available to stakeholders from the political, academic, business, and scientific communities. That's a lot what you're doing there. His institute is also one of the first in the country to focus on local government. Mr. Mayor, nice to have you. Nice to see you here in the Commonwealth Club. Nice to see you too. And as a matter of fact, you left one thing out. What did I leave out? Uh, you and I hooked up together um, almost, uh, what, 15 years ago? 2008. 2008, and we were runners. That's when San Francisco was one of the stops for the Olympic torch. And the two of us <laughs> were part of that group of people doing the run. And the interesting part of that is that uh, when the race for the U.S. Senate that just occurred in Georgia... November of last year, the person that was with us in that torch-carrying activity here was none other than the guy that lost that Senate race. All of you remember that great football player, Herschel Walker? <laughs> we could have told everybody that he couldn't win the race because he couldn't win the run against us. <laughs> And, and, and if you recall, that was 2008. There were a few protesters here because the games, the Olympics were in Beijing and there were some civil rights uh, and some human rights activists and protesters. So running that torch was uh, challenging. Uh, the mayor and I and Herschel Walker, Natalie Coughlin, Evander Holyfield, a bunch of people uh, were being driven around the city to find a place to run in between all the protesters. So <laughs> good to see you again after nice all that. Nice to see you too. Um, Mr. Mayor, this has been almost, I'm looking over just my own memory here, and it's been almost 20 years since you've been the active mayor of San Francisco, uh, yet you still remain as one of the most powerful and influential voices in politics here in the Bay Area and beyond. Um, why is that, and why do you want to stay so current and relevant here? Well, 
you talked about my institute. Now, the institute, so that you taxpayers know, <laughs> not one nickel of the institute's operation comes from anybody but me. No public money, no, none of, no public dollars, none of the above. I chose to stay active because local government um, has, in my opinion, always been shortchanged, not only by appropriations for local government, but also by authorizations on the policy side of local government. For an example, you know occasionally now we hear about people shooting each other, shooting each other in cars, on the streets, and etc. Almost nothing at the local level can be done about that. That's a state and a federal issue. That's just one example sure. of how handicapped local government really is. And so when I served as mayor, I tried my best to bridge the gap um, by interpreting the rules. <laughs> and to that end, I am doing my best for the mayor of Oakland, for the mayor of San Francisco, uh, for all the previous mayors that have been in and around the Bay Area since I became the mayor. I share with them how I did it. You have a great gift now of perspective and help us understand here because we hear and live and see the doom and gloom of San Francisco in this great city. Let's go back in 50 years. Is this the worst it's been or is this just another down point that we can recover from? Oh, I think it's just a down point. Uh, I'm sure that it's not the worst. Uh, but I don't remember uh, anything uh, negative about this city that would cause me to be in the group of people discussing uh, doom and gloom. Uh, there's just no such thing. I, I'm around the city probably as much as anybody, if not more, every day. And I got to tell you that, that it is still as interesting, as complicated, as challenging as it has always been. And I'm constantly dedicated to the idea uh, that uh, those complications are going to be unraveled and they're going to be unraveled by us collectively. You didn't deal with the homelessness and drug use to this level when you were mayor. Nobody anywhere has dealt with homelessness and and uh, mental illness and, 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 and poverty um, as mayors are having to do uh, throughout America. It doesn't matter what city you're in. And when I served as mayor, uh, trying to learn how to be a mayor, but I really didn't know how to be a mayor, and I'm not sure I still know how to be a mayor, uh, but I can tell you I had spent more than 30 years at the legislative level, and I was really contemptuous of local government. I always thought they should be abolished, and that we ought to run everything from the state level. And then suddenly I found myself in local government, <laughs> and that meant that I had to adjust uh, accordingly. And I did uh, adjust accordingly. I did so by holding what's called summits 
I, so I could learn from the public and from experts from all across the country and from other mayors from all across the country. And one of the homeless, one of the deals that I wanted to do was to address homelessness. In preparation for every summit, I always spoke to the best experts I could get my hands on before I would do the summit and before I would select other people to participate. In preparation through that process, I came to the conclusion that homelessness was an impossible problem to be solved by one unit of local government. It's just not absolutely possible. So I canceled the summit. The homeless advocates went crazy because they really thought that uh, I should have gone ahead with it. I said, no, when I do events, I do events with the idea that at the end, we're going to have an agenda that we're going to adhere to and try to get done. Homelessness is a combination of poverty, big time. Poverty can't be solved by local government, by one county of local government. It probably can't be solved by multiple counties of local government unless they have unusual amount of cooperation and that unusual amount of cooperation includes somewhat of a working relationship with the state that has greater resources and greater options to do things. And then secondly, at the whole business of the federal government and all of its mighty wealth being made available for certain programs and policies. All those are things you need to start right out of the box addressing with homelessness. And then you suddenly discover, wait a minute, homeless is made up of certain components in the population. One of those components in the population, of course, is persons who suffer from certain mental issues. It was, I don't know, 40 years ago when a guy named Reagan, as the governor of the state of California, closed all the state institutions. He did so because many of our well-meaning, talented, bright, able people in the social service world was convinced that they could do a better job of being helpful to people who were challenged on the mental side if they had them locally, if they had them near where uh, they lived, if they had them where they had their relatives, if they had them where there were people that they knew, if they had them where they go to church, sure. if they ever did go to church, where they go to movie houses and what have you, because they said going other places and relocating, you're not going to be able to get it right. And that's why we've had these institutions statewide that people have done, like the Napa State Hospital. Let's do it at the local level. Reagan bought into it. Three members of the legislature, uh, Lanterman, Petrus, and Short, Short from Stockton, Petrus from Alameda County, and Lanterman from Lacanado, came up with this great proposal. Never funded, what not one nickel, came from the state or the feds to do something about replacing Napa State Hospital and all the other facilities. Yeah. And then, even worse, 
the Veterans Administration failed to understand what was a real challenge for people coming back from wars where they've been killing other people and doing horrible things in the name of all of what you do in the military. Yet, they were not doing what they needed to do to offer assistance to these people, especially through local government. And then finally, we were in the process suddenly of being exposed to drugs, drugs that we had never heard of in some cases before. And there were things being overprescribed and people were developing addiction problems. I did not proceed with my summit on homelessness because I, that stage of the game, knew that the components that made up what we call homelessness was so complicated and so ultimately dependent upon things that were beyond the control of one city, beyond the control of one mayor, that I would be misleading the public if I did what we currently do about homelessness. So, so here we are now, and I know you consult and are still very close to Mayor Breed, as you were saying as well. Um, Having dinner with her tonight. So, so, so when you see her in 90 minutes from now, I mean, and, and the multiple conversations you've had, how does she get out of this, whether it's a, a public relations tsunami? Because when you were mayor, there wasn't Twitter and Instagram to say, all this is happening, San Francisco is a horrid city. How does she get out of this, and how does she change it? Because something's not been working for the last year. With her. Well, first and foremost, I've got a number of friends in the media world uh, who really uh, sometimes get upset when I talk about the need for journalists to be totally and completely candid and honest. And if they're not, they ought to say, we're running our game like Fox News. Fox News doesn't bullshit anybody. Fox News says we're doing what we want to do for Fox News and how we want to do it. And, it, you know, you'd have to be out of your mind to think they're telling the truth. So <laughs> it, 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 on any of what they do. Uh, and so I uh, have always uh, been really uh, forceful in interacting uh, with the news media and with media generally. Because the First Amendment, which gives the ultimate protection to the world of journalism and to the world of information, the way it's done, that ought to carry with it the highest standard of requirement for accuracy and, in fact, uh, for honesty. And for there are organizations, I'd like to say it might as well, that we do follow those rules. Well, let me tell you, What's being said about San Francisco? There's a lot of good, and there's a lot of issues. And we well, say both. Well, but what is being said? Yeah, I, I, I won't not specify which of the news organizations <laughs> deserve but, to be but, thrown but, out. But, but, but uh, nonetheless, the reality is of the shared reality that there is news organizations or media or the public or people or other cities that say something about San Francisco. Um, but how does the current mayor deal with this? We could talk about the problems. She's dealing with it really, in my opinion, extremely well. She is pointing out the inadequacies in the information flow that is coming other than from her. 
you understand that you now no longer have just the world of journalism publishing, but the so-called social media publishes full-time. And there is nobody that holds them accountable for anything they say. And sometimes what they say becomes what is needed to be addressed more than anything else, even though there's may not be any accuracy at all in it. It may not be the end product of any research or any testing, etc. So Maybreed, like every other mayor in this country, has got to deal with this and they got to deal directly with it and they cannot bite their tongue and they cannot think about electability. They've got to say to the public where there is things that they can do or should do and where there are things they can't do, period. Yeah. And there are things they should not do. And she is now doing that as eloquently as any other mayor in this country. Was there a change recently that she said, okay, now I've got to shift my focus, shift my strategy? Lennon Bree's a nice person. She's not like I am. You know, she, <laughs> I, I, I wouldn't tolerate one-tenth of what she tolerates and have tolerated. Plus, when I served as mayor, we were not burdened with a board of supervisors that constantly and with regularity tries their best, in many cases, to usurp the mayor and the rules contained herein. The minute I left the job of mayor, they immediately changed the rules. And we, the public, allowed them to get away with it. For an example, this nonsense that they came up with about rank choice voting, that is part of how they have orchestrated the business of allowing them to get elected, because they can't get elected if you get down to just two people. They find themselves at odds uh, with the result that they desire. Secondly, they came up with the terrible idea of having the taxpayers pay for their campaigns. We now pay for the campaigns. You raise, you get me to give you 500 bucks because we don't want anybody dominating and we pick up the tab for all that money you spend and we don't really regulate how you spend that money as closely as donors regulate how you spend donated money. And so you suddenly have these same people that change the method of how you get elected through what's called ranked choice voting, and they did so because we really believe, this is what they said, we really believe that runoff elections are just expensive, and they don't need runoff elections. Well, I beat Frank Jordan in a runoff election. I beat, uh, you know, the second guy, Amiono, in a runoff election. Nobody has been in a runoff election since then, practically. And, 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 and believe me, uh, we never should have allowed ourselves to fall for the idea that there should not be an opportunity for us 
They have the last two people standing. And we evaluate each one of them in their debates and all those kinds of things. They changed all those rules. Then they went even further. They said the mayor appoints commissioners. Some, I don't know, a couple hundred commissioners are appointed. Some of those commissioners really help make public policy. Some of those commissioners run really good businesses like the port and the airport and the PUC and others. They now have changed the rules there. And you and me, the public, have allowed them to do so because they said, okay, if there are five members on that body to be appointed, the mayor can appoint three. We're going to appoint the other two. But we also are going to have the right to tell the mayor we don't like the three he appointed. Hmm. We don't have to approve them. Nobody approves their two but them, the 11 members of the board. They get a chance to take away so the mayor ends up in a position today where she has to shop the candidate before she exposes the candidate for pre-clearance purposes. Most people don't want to go through that. So I'm telling you, the way the city is now organized, all because of the business of trying to get influence in policymaking without voter authorization, a majority vote up. Yeah. They get voter authorization, but not majority vote authorization. And so the results are you find London Breed and every other mayor holding the job, and they are serving at the mercy, literally, because of the limitations that have been imposed by this collection of supervisors. We, ought to, we don't need 11 supervisors. And they're all on TV. Let me assure you one thing. There are 58 counties, <clears throat> only one that has more than five supervisors. Now, you know, San Francisco is really kind of a whooped operation with all of the kind of things well, you, that you, I've you're just saying described. with such intricacy. You're saying things that that are that, that are eye-opening to to so many of us in this room. And then I get back on, okay, so what are we going to do about it? So, so we talk about the homelessness and the crime and the drugs, but, but now we have big business leaving. As you know, the, the, the Westfield is shutting down. The movie theater is leaving. Gap, Banana Republic, all these stores are, are, are leaving downtown. What do we do with that, right. retail? What do we do with that retail Let's space? Let's deal with each one individually. The movie houses. People don't go to movies anymore. Sure. But People stay home, watch you. Watch lots of other, watch programs that have been uh, screened by Paramount. Th- th- this been is screened th- by Netflix. So suddenly, but, but this the, is not a San Francisco only problem. But right now, we're just talking about San Francisco. Oh, I understand. That's what I'm telling you. It, the unfairness associated with it, because when people and, and believe me, I can assure you, I'm a shopper. <laughs> yes. <laughs> You don't, you don't say. <laughs> There's one place that I stop shopping because of the quality of the products. Nostrums. There was nothing in Nostrums that I wanted. I didn't even want to get my uh, makeup from Nostrums uh, to show you how. Uh, so. Well, uh, they, they, wait, 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 let me go on. Yeah. They were not doing, <laughs> they were not offering what they needed to. When they first came here, I was a mayor. I authorized 
the modifications of that piece of land. That's, by the way, owned by the school district. Yes, or virtually controlled by the school district. And at one time, when it was uh, the Emporium, with a, a wonderful yard on top of the building that allows you to bring your kids for all the kinds of things kids do uh, and, uh, at a place similar to a beach. And that's what it was. It, and, and people uh, went downtown to shop uh, because they couldn't shop in Walnut Creek. There was nothing over there. Uh, they couldn't shop in you know, some other places. Suddenly... All these people start uh, who owned and had the investment opportunities uh, start moving and investing in such a way that they really wanted to get more of the business than they previously had or they already had. And so the results were they made a decision to put a mall in downtown San Francisco. No mall should be in this city. This is not a city for malls. You know, you can't, you, malls have to, you have to free parking. I mean, there's a thing at free parking in San Francisco. And so the, the, the mall appetite is at Tanforan. Yeah. And that's where it should be. It should not be here. You, you bring up great points. And for, for everyone in the audience, if you didn't know, malls, shopping centers are doing big business but not in major cities. If you go to Stanford, Walnut Creek, San Jose, Santana Row, they're a big business. So now, with that said, we have these shells of stores here. What do we do? Well, I can assure you that people who own that property, they're going to find a way to use it, and they're going to find a way to make it productive. That's the way the world works in a true democracy where the economy is not subject to government total and complete control, but only for safety purposes and for honesty purposes, et cetera. So I, you know, I'd like to shed a tear for, you know, Nordstrom's, (laughs) but it's hard. I do for the people, (laughs) for the people who work there, I do. And then let me tell you another one. I'll give you another example. Why would anybody that runs something called Whole Foods (laughs) that charges a fortune for every item, every banana, charges a lot more than my corner grocery store. But to put my corner grocery store out of business and the prices and all the antics that go with it, and they put it where it's bound to fail because none of the people on the streets of homelessness and all those problems, they don't shop. At least they don't shop with money at, <laughs> at Whole Foods. And Whole Foods knew that. Uh, and so hey, I'm telling you that the, 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 the world of commercialization uh, is, uh, uh, in San Francisco uh, is limping. But they are, in fact... Uh, in many cases, responsible for their own limping because of the nature of what they did. Now, on the other hand, the pandemic really raised hell with this whole country, but it particularly raised hell with cities. When you start sanctioning this business of so-called 
stay-at-home work. I think that's what they call it, something like yeah. that. Work from home? Yeah. yeah. Remote. <laughs> that's the term. People have become addicted to remote. People are no longer coming downtown where they used to work and hang out with the, um, you know, uh, what they would do at the end of the day when they would go happy hour. They don't do any of that stuff. Now they do it in their own neighborhoods because they're not working. You know, they claim they're, they're getting paid like they're working, uh, but they're not really working. And, you know, You're talking to the wrong guy. I got to go to work every day. So do I. So do I. I've got to go to work, and I want to. By the way, I want to go to work. That's part of who I am. I really love uh, going to work, and I do it every day. Yeah. I, and I walk to work uh, and uh, insist that the people work for me. And, you know, they, they sit, the federal government came up with this brilliant idea. Why don't we provide some incentive loans to all these businesses? Wait a minute. Why, are you kidding me? Uh, how many honest business guys do you think are out there? <laughs> you know, that, that you can give money to. Now we got about, what, 80 years of fraud we're trying to unravel uh, because of all those loans that we gave them, uh, that we lent them, and we told them we would do some forgiveness, but they had to keep paying their employees. Many of them stopped paying them. They remodeled their buildings. They changed all kinds of things that they were doing because suddenly they had financing uh, without paying anything for it, period. I am telling you, it is not the fault of cities that their office buildings are vacant. It is a combination of all those things that resulted in that, including the people that own those office buildings, the offices that were there, and the workers that previously went to work and are no longer going to work. Yeah. So when you say London Breed did that, no way London Breed did that. Are you kidding me? London Breed did what she was supposed to do. She said, let's stop standing next to each other so we don't spread germs, we don't spread viruses, we don't do any of those things, because that's what the health department said we ought to do. <clears throat> Nobody questioned the health department. I didn't even question mm -hmm. the health department. I tried to get the vaccination as quick as I could, yeah. but I didn't question the health department. Nobody did. Suddenly, mayors are suffering from decisions that they had nothing to do with. The federal government and the health world made the decisions you had to shut down. All of your buildings are now closed. Those buildings are now closed unless they're leases. Nobody is paying any rent. So suddenly those buildings are empty because nobody's going to work. Nobody's going to work. The number of Starbucks are no longer needed. It used to be a Starbucks needed on every corner because we all bought coffee. We don't do that anymore because, you know, so Starbucks are reduced. Even my favorite subway is gone, <laughs> you know, so now all because there's no multiplicity of people. But I have to go look for somebody uh, to clip my nails. It used to be. It was a nail clipper everywhere. Yeah. Now, all that has altered itself. And so uh, we are in a situation now where the creativity of the people 
who earns millions of dollars being clever at selling, supplying, and doing all those things. They just got to get back on their jobs and do it again. Yeah. You, you were so instrumental, you along with Mayor Ed Lee, uh, who came after you, um, in just bringing and revitalizing so many areas of San Francisco. In that process, with all the tech buildings and the companies and the ballpark, did, did the city lose some of its soul that, that we've grown, grown to love? No, no, no. city did not lose any of its soul. For an example, the biggest project that we did on the development side in the city is Mission Bay. Yeah. So what's in Mission Bay now? 6,900 units of housing for people who work primarily in Mission Bay. 1,700 of those units were on the affordable side, and they had to be built first. And then the remainder of the area was to have as much open space as Golden Gate Park, but not shaped in any fashion like Golden Gate Park, so that every cluster of places where people live would have uh, open space. That part of the town all knew it had all of the things that you would want in an ideal place because we built, when we built it, we built the things that you love before we built anything else. And we made it so that the design, there's no drive-through. You can't drive through Mission Bay. Yeah. We made sure we wanted you to walk through Mission Bay. And we did not want you to treat it uh, like you treat all of Third Street, or like you treat uh, all of you know, Gary Street, sure. for an example. And we did that, and we did it. And the only commercial facility that we put out there, I was gone by the time they got to this one, Chase Center, that's the commercial facility yeah. in Mission Bay. Gus has a market there, but he's got a great market there. <laughs> but it's a market that is friendly to Mission Bay. And so uh, the Giants are trying to repeat that process at Pier 70. So there are, and, and we did Mission Bay in a way in which San Francisco is unaccustomed to doing things. Somewhere we came up with the idea years ago, apparently, that uh, you ought to just not complete anything in your lifetime <laughs> or mine. So we, in, in, in Mission Bay, we ignored all the rules. We blew planners back to where they came from. Uh, we literally did Mission Bay the way Mission Bay should have been done. Yeah. And it is a... And we were going to do the rest of the city that way. Ed Lee had the same vision. Newsom, in part, had that vision. You know, if we could have held on to the 49ers, uh, Newsom lost the Niners, but we could have held on to the... <laughs> do, do, does he know that? Why? Does he know that? Oh, sure. <laughs> sure. I can get him on the phone right now. <laughs> he acknowledges it. Yeah, because you may or may not remember, but we had a vote. There are a lot of people here who voted. I remember. We had, build we had the stadium, stadium plan. Everything yeah. was all situated. Yeah. And then uh, my friend, the Bartolo, got popped for messing around in Louisiana trying to get a dog track going. And the NFL kicked him out on the basis he was not fit to hang out with people who run the NFL. Uh, uh, and, and, and the results was that... Uh, uh, his sister, 
who took over. She took over. The family kept the team, but he couldn't have anything to do with it because they were so, you know, pristine with their integrity and all that nonsense. Tell us something. Was there a dinner, a lunch, a meeting, a conversation where it just finally kind of broke down that, 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 that you can share with us with regarding the 49ers leaving here? Well, yes, there was an occasion. Uh, John York, the father, the husband of Eddie's sister, who became the real owner before his son was old enough to take over and run the operation. And uh, (laughs) we were doing one of those deals at the Hyde Regency. And uh, Diane, good mayor and a good senator, announced when they were told that there are other places looking at the 49ers, she said, uh, if they try to move the 49ers uh, from San Francisco, we will legislatively bar you from using the name San Francisco. You can call them the 49ers, but not San Francisco. And everybody in the place stood up and applauded her. I am seated next to John York. <laughs> And he, of course, has already disliked San Francisco for whatever reasons, I don't know, uh, but uh, he didn't move. Well, now I'm stuck. How do you not move next to the guy that is the husband to the owner and he's being insulted by Diane and all these other people? So I decided I'd just sit too. Um, And he turns to me and he said, I'm leaving. And he did. And that was the end of the 49ers in San Francisco. And it was the end of my almost 50 years of being a season ticket holder um, because I do not believe football should be played in Santa Clara. (laughs) Even though that's where you... (laughs) Oh, no. Now, where else can you get stories like that? But at the Commonwealth Club. We've got some great questions here. Let me read through from from the audience uh, and from our YouTube uh, listeners as well, viewers. Uh, Mr. Mayor, what is the best piece of professional advice that you've received, and who was it from? It was from a guy named Phil Burton, who was a congressman when he gave me advice. No, he wasn't. He was a state legislator when he gave me the advice, and the advice was, you are natural for politics. Forget all that money you're making as a lawyer. Run for office, 1962, and I promptly lost. (laughs) But I didn't stop. I believed in what Phil said, and I ran in 64 against the same guy, I lost the first time by 1,000 votes. I beat him by 4,000 votes. And the way we beat him was that we made sure that everybody who was going to vote or eligible to vote actually met Willie Brown. And we became a brand. Yeah. And that brand has lasted until today. I still remember the mayor, the hats and the T-shirts. What's the most challenging issue facing the Democratic Party? The most challenging issue facing us is to make sure that 
Biden wins the presidency and that Trump gets an orange jumpsuit. From the same person, what's the most challenging issue facing the Republican Party? They, unfortunately for them, they cannot get rid of Trump. He is stuck to them, and they are stuck to him. Period. They'd like to get rid of him, but they, they fear politicians on that side fear said anything because his the people that are devoted to him are similar to the people who started the uh, civil war there's no rationality at all no human kindness no humanity they really are the people who were on January 6th 2021, they were deadly serious about what they did. And they did it um, the way they wanted to do it, and they're still doing it exactly that way. He has contributed uh, to some of it um, because he put people on the Supreme Court that uh, still uh, espouse his views in many cases. Some of those people on the Supreme Court, like Thomas and Alito and a couple of others, shouldn't be there. But nevertheless, they are, and and they too are Trumpites. Uh, And it's just uh, horrible uh, for them uh, to be burdened where they cannot even logically discuss making a decision in a democracy where we discuss and talk about and factually address, they are not really permitted to do that, period. They are stuck with him, and that is a problem for them that could have uh, years of implications. Another question from our audience. We have a historical movement right now for reparations for black Americans here uh, at the state and local level. Um, what's your view on the viability of reparations? Do you support it? Well, I had been looking for a long time for my 40 acres and a mule. <laughs> and I know exactly which 40 acres <laughs> that are due me. <laughs> Post-1865, when finally we got word that the Emancipation Proclamation had been signed, post-1865 till 1994, 1954, we um, tolerated in this country noncompliance with all aspects of what's supposed to be a level of equality that uh, 
had not been and still hasn't been granted to a multiplicity of people, but particularly black people who had been enslaved. And so the reparation issue that's being addressed, and I think Governor Newsom signed a measure that created an entity that's doing the work that needs to be done, I'm certain that they're going to come forward with uh, some form of a, a program that will translate into uh, a method uh, by which um, all of us will embrace as we did uh, when uh, we corrected what we did to the Japanese in the Second World War, uh, when uh, we uh, provided uh, ultimately uh, many, many years later, uh, but we did provide uh, some indication of, of some payment of some sort that uh, would, uh, I guess, in some way temper the disgust with this country that those who were taken out of their homes and their farms and everywhere and put in concentration you know, facilities, etc. Um, black folk are entitled to uh, the same kind of attention, and that's what uh, I think the group who's now looking at it at the state level and at the city level are attempting to do. It's going to be really tough, though, because... Uh, historical records are hard to come by in terms of lineage here. Well, you know, when you think about... I started with my 40 acres and a mule. You know what that's worth today? <laughs> you got any idea what it could be worth? And if all of us were old, all the black people were old, uh, 40 acres and a mule, there'd be a whole lot of people who've been passing that would be coming home. Hey, <laughs> I, I used to be white. <laughs> <laughs> so that issue has got to be addressed in a far more serious way, uh, and it will be, and it should be, and I'm just glad I don't have the responsibility to do it. It's it's going to be an intricate process and complex. Uh, from our audience, does San Francisco today feel like New York of the 1970s? I'm guessing uh, the reference to crime in the city. I I. You know, I didn't know anything about New York except what I read, and I now know that the reliability of what I read uh, <laughs> may not be the best source of information. So for comparative purposes, I, I'm not sure that I can answer the question whether or not uh, San Francisco is similar to New York. Two of my children went to school in New York, um, and... Uh, college and uh, it was at the end of the 70s when they transitioned out of San Francisco and because I made the mistake of saying um, I will pay your uh, cost wherever you can get admitted <laughs> what a mistake <laughs> uh, <laughs> because 
my children, even one of them now that have is going to go to law school, uh, it was taking advantage of that same offer. <laughs> uh, but they moved to New York, the two, two girls moved to New York, and it was at the exact time that the real estate was considered really available because people were allegedly not want to live in New York, not want to do business in New York. And so the Brown family uh, borrowed some money and, and bought a co-op. Mm-hmm. I didn't know anything about co-ops. Still don't. <laughs> uh, but I got to tell you that it was a great investment because by the time I sold it, when they had graduated and all that kind of stuff, it was five times what I paid for it. I got five times what I paid for it, which then funded part of my existence here in San Francisco. So I highly recommend to people uh, that they discuss the possibility of San Francisco being in the same place as New York was, buy some property and wait. I like that. A few more minutes before we wrap up, and we're really getting some great questions here. I like this one. Several Bay Area cities, like Oakland and San Jose, have new mayors. What advice would you give them? Each of those two cities are uh, a part of a nine-county area. That's what the Bay Area really is. It's nine counties. We screwed up badly when we allowed counties to opt out of the transportation system that should have linked everybody together. I should be able to get on a train and show up in Santa Rosa in 45 minutes, but I can't go that way at all because that part of the county has opted out. The counties, uh, only three counties said, okay, go ahead, build a transit system that connects us, but only the train connection. We'll have our own bus deal. So Alameda still has its own bus service. San Mateo County still has its own bus service. You know, it's just awful that we did not force ourselves and discipline ourselves and connect all of these places by a form of public transportation similar to what we did in the three counties, Alameda, Contra Costa, and San Francisco. Now Santa Clara is trying to come on without paying full freight uh, (laughs) for participation. And obviously, since we don't have any land for an airport, we have our airports out there, and we wanted to make sure that our train service went to our airport. San Mateo County benefited by, by our train system, and they paid nothing for it. Uh, so I would tell those two mayors, you better watch your neighbors. <laughs> That's the advice? <laughs> they will ride on you if you let them. <laughs> and I should say for everyone in the audience and listening online as well, if you just Google the original BART map before all the counties said, don't come in our neighborhood, it's amazing. It went down to San Jose, it went across this way, it went up north, oh, yeah. it went down it, south. It's a, it's a full outline of the Bay Area, and then politics got involved. That's right. And when they did, they pulled the plug, and we ended up with only three 
and now we're actually going to have five because San Mateo County, living off of us, uh, <laughs> got access to the system because of the location of our airport, and then obviously San Jose needed for its employment purposes and what have you, yeah. needed access to the service, and it made sense anyway. So we're going down uh, to San Jose under mayors who preceded them. But now that we've got at least five, four or five mayors who really believe in the transit system, they really ought to be about telling Newsom, use the transit dollars to extract out of the nine counties which should have been a part of the system. And I know we can't do nine, we can't do rail now in some because it's too costly, but we can use water. If we would do a ferry service that had the same kind of components to it when we were trying to do the transit system, yeah. you end up, you, we would have 50 probably, 50 places uh, where you could bring in the boat and we would have with some regularity uh, the water taxes would be what we would be using. For an example, if I want to go to Vallejo, now the highway is so crowded, you're better off getting on the uh, ferry boat yeah. right here. And you want to go to Benicia? Get on the ferry boat. Yeah, you're right. And go to Vallejo and take a taxi. And so we, we really are at the stage where these new mayors join with London Breed and some of the other mayors who are in this region, and the ones who would love that joining together are the mayors in the wine country. Man, are they interested in uh, uh, hooking up with transit because they have been so dedicated to no more than two lanes anywhere in the wine country. <laughs> they want, and they, they're coming up now with those train trips, you know those? Yeah, oh yeah. Oh yeah, they're they're getting to be desperate for <laughs> that kind of and, and 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 these two mayors, the new mayors, along with the existing mayor, really could be a part of a mayor's revolution that gets us back to where we need to be for the nine counties to be accessible uh, the way uh, our city and Alameda County sure. is currently accessible. Two final questions here. Uh, you brought up uh, another former mayor of San Francisco, the political future for uh, former mayor Gavin Newsom, Governor Newsom here. He has probably the best potential shot of the presidency from a governor's standpoint in the country, period. He really does have a great potential and. Biden will, you know, and Harris will be reelected. And Newsom currently serves, I think, till 26. Mm -hmm. I think his term ends in 26. He's got to find something else to do, and I don't know what he will, because you've got to stay in the game. You can't uh, bail out and then think you can come back um, uh, at some distant time. He's 55, so he's got plenty of time. So 2028 would be uh, right up his alley? Yeah. 
And final question, how often do you shop? How many ties and hats do you have? Because, and let me say this, every time I'm with the mayor, it's a different set of socks, a different tie, a different top hat, a different everything. And I wear suits. We're the last two guys in the Bay Area that still wear suits every day. Well, you know, it's interesting because I only put on what I put on today because I was seeing you. (laughs) Literally, I was seeing you. And uh, I was at my office and... So wait a minute, I better go change my shoes. <laughs> and you know, when a guy gets addicted to the point where you're talking about changing his shoes. But you have one of the shoes that I had on that are orange with this outfit. Yeah. But I changed to the brown suede because I thought maybe you would be wearing business. I knew you were going to wear a tie and, and a dress shirt. I knew that because I see you on the air every day, uh, all decked, and uh, I don't. I, I I do my best not to um, make my friends and relatives uncomfortable. Uh, <laughs> and in this town, people don't wear ties anymore. No. It's amazing. In this state, it's like they don't breath. even sell ties. <laughs> <laughs> we're we're the last two guys. Yeah, we are it. But I love it. I, I have a wardrobe of everything. And you ask the question, how often do I shop? Yep. As often as I can find the time. <laughs> Period. And I will I, say, I thought about my wardrobe coming in. And I said, looked at my shoes. Let me get one of my fancy shoes. But I knew there was no way I could out-fancy you. So I went the other way. I went down to sneakers. <laughs> <laughs> but, the, um, but the socks beat my socks. <laughs> Mine is striped. Yours a check. I like that. You've got a, a dinner appointment with uh, the current mayor, so we're going to let you go. Thank you for all of you for tuning in and being here in person. And most importantly, thank you to Mayor Brown. It is such a pleasure to um, just spend uh, some time with you and get your insight and your humor uh, and your candid comments about the state of San Francisco and what's happening around us. Appreciate it. All right, Rob. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support. Thank you.